Peter chapter 3, so go wherever you want to. We won't get to 2 Peter for a little bit, but if you want to go ahead and go there and be ready when we do, you can. And so we're looking at the thought of trusting God to keep His Word. And Psalm 18, 28-31 that was just read, uh, talks about uh, God being the lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Verse 30, as for God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord is proven. And then in verse 31, and who is a rock except our God? When you think of that thought of a rock, a rock is something that's unchanging. It's something that will stand the test of time. It's something that's, that's sturdy. As a young boy growing up, I always loved the Chevrolet commercials. Uh, truck guys, do you remember what Chevy's motto was? Like a rock, right? I, I would sing that, I won't do it for you, but I would sing that tagline all the time. Like Y'all y'all know it, like a rock, because it was dependable, and it was durable, and you knew it was going to start when you needed it to start, and it was going to haul the trailer when you needed it to haul the trailer. Do, whatever cool truck stuff you were going to be doing, that Chevy was like a rock, and it was going to be dependable. Of course, you know, the, the Ford people had some different jokes <laughs> about it being like a rock. That's not... A, going in tune with the lesson this morning but the dependability of something that is is a rock and the bible uses that analogy to speak about god being our rock to find someone that you can trust today is a rare commodity uh, there are people today that have taken to, to swearing. James 5 and verse 12 is a reflection of Matthew 5, 37. But James 5 says, Above all, my brethren, do not swear, and neither by heaven nor by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. And so why do people feel the need to swear sometimes? I think it's because folks are so accustomed to people lying or for people to not keep their word that simply saying your word is not enough. That's why we get receipts when we go places. That's why when you book something, you get a confirmation email or text message or a reservation because someone's word is not enough anymore. Uh, I booked a reservation for a flight a couple of months ago out of Paducah. The first time I've done it in a while. I booked the reservation. It got finished. And guess what I got? Got an email confirmation. Go from Paducah to Charlotte and from Charlotte on from there. And it had, you know, the four flights, the two going and the two coming back. And I noticed that there was an earlier flight that I liked better. And so I called the lady that I'd booked it with and I said, let's switch to this other flight. She said, no problem, it's done. I said, how can it be done? She said, well, there's only two flights out of Paducah. We moved you to the other one. Everything's taken care of. So what about my second flight? It's all done. Thank you. Have a great day. And she hung up and I got another confirmation email. Cool. But the second confirmation email didn't have the flight from Charlotte on to where I was going. <laughs> and so somehow in the booking process, I'd gotten my flights out of Paducah. My second flight both ways had been canceled. That's a problem because Charlotte's not where I'm trying to get to. So I had to call back and go through the whole process. And the lady said, yeah, no worries. We've given you credit back. We've re refunded the money to your credit card. And I said, well, how do I know that? She said, just trust me. Take my word for it. <laughs> Maybe I'm bad. I didn't take her word for it. I wanted an email. I wanted proof. Seven hours later, I've got my flights back and everything's good. But I've got proof of confirmation. I wasn't willing to just take her word for it. Now, am I paranoid or is anyone else a little bit like that today? That you want to have 
proof. I want to have confirmation. It's why electronic tickets today make me so nervous. Every time you go to a ball game or you go to a concert, I love the old days, and it's how my kids tell me that they can tell I'm getting old. I love the old days of having a piece of paper in my hand that said admit one because I was pretty confident I was going to be admitted because I've got it right here. On the, I don't know. I, I like the proof. I like the stability. I like the confirmation. God tells us that we can trust Him. You and I can trust God to keep His Word. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 1. In 2 Peter 3 it says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us. The apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, what they are saying, what these scoffers are saying, is that there is no God. They're saying that there is no judgment They're saying that when you're dead, you're just dead, and there's nothing after that, and there's no reason to do the things that God has told us to do, and there's no reason to fear the Lord for punishment of hell, and there's no reason to have the hope for an eternity in heaven, because they say, look at all these prophecies that you believe, all these things that God has said were going to come to pass, and it hasn't happened, the world's still turning just the way that it was in the days of old. And they were saying this thousands of years ago, and there's people out there saying the same thing today. Uh, live it up. Who do you believe? You're going to believe the words from the Bible, or are you going to believe what's happened for the last uh, 2,000 or so years and the Lord hasn't returned? You can't keep trusting God to keep His Word, is what the, lo- the world would tell you. I want to submit to you this morning that we can, and here's how we know that. Number one on your outlines, if you picked one up, we can trust God to keep His Word because God has never failed to keep his word. The first example of that's in Genesis chapter 12 in regards to him keeping his word to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, into a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all you, the families of all the earth shall be blessed. And so they came to the land of Canaan. And you skip down to verse 7. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God made this this promise to Abraham, and he kept it. But I think it's interesting to note the timeline of him keeping the promise didn't line up with what Abraham might have expected. You recall he was well advanced in age before he had this son. Interesting to me, and and I always think this gets overlooked when we talk about Abraham being willing to offer his son Isaac. At the time, his only son, who all these promises were going to come about through, waited all this time to have this son, and now God tells Abraham to offer him as a sacrifice. Could you imagine the confusion that that had to have caused? Uh, But he went about it and and was going to do what the Lord asked him to do. God kept his word to Abraham. Letter B in Joshua chapter 23 and verse 14, we see that God kept his word to Israel. 
In verse 14, it says, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Tyler on Wednesday nights has been studying through the book of Judges. And it's interesting to me when you think about the, the plot of Israel and the Israelites and, and God's chosen people and all the things that were promised to them. And yet we see time and time again them turning their backs on God. And we see time and time again that it looks like things have gone off course and there's no hope for God to keep the promises to Israel. But time and time again, what happens? He keeps those promises. I think you start to see a common theme. The timetable's not the same, perhaps, as what the Israelites would have wanted. I don't think they had planned to spend 40 years in the wilderness wandering. I don't think that was part of what they considered God keeping His promises. But at the end of the story, God did just that. He kept His Word to Israel. Letter C, He kept His Word to the saints of the early church. Over in Matthew 26 and verse 32, as the Lord's Supper is being instituted, Jesus is giving some final directives to His apostles, and He tells them in verse 32, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. That's what Jesus tells them. After I've been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. At this point in time, they don't know about the coming crucifixion. They don't know about the things that are going to take place. Just after he says that, he goes on and he foretells about Peter's denial. You remember that? He tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight before the rooster crows in the morning. Then he goes and he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays and he asks his apostles to stay and wait and watch. And they, they don't. They fall asleep. Three different times he comes back and he begs them to pray. And, and then there is the betrayal in the garden. And, and here's Peter who has to still have on his mind the fact that the Lord said you're going to deny me. And so when they come to take Jesus, you remember what he does? He draws his sword. He's ready to fight. I told you, I'm not going to deny you. I'm ready to fight. The Lord tells him to put away his sword. And our Savior is taken and He's crucified. And all these things take place. And in chapter 27, we read about the crucifixion. And then in 28 and verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. He kept His word to the saints of the early church. He told them time and time again about His pending death, burial, and resurrection. They didn't want to believe it, but it came to pass. God kept His Word. And that's where we see in verse 16 the great commission that He gives. God keeps His promises. Number two in your outlines. And I love number one. I love God keeping His promises. I love the promise of a, of a meal that comes with a dessert. <laughs> At the end of the meal, you get the promise and you get the, the dessert. I love promise. I, I love rewards. I love knowing that something good is going to come about. And I love the fact that, that God keeps His promises to those in gar regards to, to a reward or to a, a, a benefit or to something positive. Number two scares me because here, God also keeps His words of warning. God's words of warning never fail. And we have examples from those from Scripture as well. First of all, in Genesis chapter 2, God's word to Adam and Eve proved to be true. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
It was the warning that God gave. And in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent came and he tempts the woman. You remember the story. The serpent goes to the woman and says, is that really what God said? That you're going to die? And the serpent goes on to convince her, you're not going to die. What's going to happen is you'll become wise and you'll be like God. And that's why he doesn't want you to eat of this fruit, of this tree. And so the serpent deceives the woman. And then the woman deceives her husband. And we see sin enter into the world. Do you recall the punishment that they received? God kept his word. Sin, death, the pain of childbirth, the requirement of labor for man to be able to feed and provide for his family. God's word to Adam and Eve proved true. Letter B, we have the example of God's word to Noah proving true as well. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 13, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And you remember what happened next? It rained for 40 days and for 40 nights, and everything except for Noah and his family and the animals that were on the ark were all destroyed. God's words of warning came to pass. In Genesis chapters 18 and 19, God gives warning to Sodom and Gomorrah, which also proved true. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so he goes down and destroys the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Except for Lot and some of his family. Lot's wife, if you recall, turned back, and even she too turned to a pillar of salt. And I think sometimes, this is my opinion, I think sometimes we read about God's warnings and we think of them as if they're hyperbole. This is my opinion, you don't have to agree. I think that's what we saw with Adam and Eve. That's what Satan used to deceive Eve, wasn't it? It's just hyperbole. He says you're going to die if you eat of this fruit. You're not going to die. It won't be that bad. Is that what the people thought in the day of Noah? When Noah's building the ark and you need to repent, you need to change. He's not going to flood the whole world. It's kind of like you, you hear the parent that sometimes speak in hyperbole to their children. If you touch that one more time, I'm going to rip your arm off. Not a whole lot of children going around with arms ripped off, are they? You're not going to literally rip off an arm. If you do that one more time, I'm going to throw every one of your toys away. Probably not. Speaking hyperbole, sometimes we read the warnings of God in the Bible and we think, nah, he wouldn't kill Adam and Eve. He wouldn't destroy the whole world except for Noah and his family. He wouldn't come down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He wouldn't allow me to spend eternity in hell. A punishment for all time because I live my life wickedly? He wouldn't do that. He's speaking in hyperbole. Church, I want to submit to you that there's not examples in Scripture of God not meaning what He says when it comes to punishments or promises. You and I can trust God to keep His Word. It's not like the parent angry at Walmart that's going to say something that they would never do. It's, it's, it's like our Heavenly Father telling us exactly what He's going to do. What He expects from us. And what our rewards or our punishments will be. So what about you and I today? What can we still count on from the Lord? We can surely still count 
on God's promises even today. Letter A there, he promises to provide for our physical needs. Matthew chapter 6, what a great chapter in the Bible. Matthew chapter 6 talks about the anxieties of life. About what are you going to eat and what are you going to wear and where are you going to live. And in verse 31, he says, Therefore, do not worry, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Instead, verse 33, seek First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things shall be added to you. And he's not saying not to work. He's not saying not to provide. He's not saying not to go about making means to be able to eat and to be clothed and to be sheltered. Uh, because we were also told in 2 Thessalonians what, chapter 3 and verse 10 that if anyone will not work, you remember that one? If anyone will not work, then neither shall he eat. He's not saying that you can be lazy. He's not saying to go home and rest and kick back and never do anything. He's just simply saying that your main focus in life shouldn't be on the things of life, but rather, verse 33, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. Focus first on serving God. If you do those things, then your physical needs will be met and be provided for. Letter B, God promises that all things will work together for good. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. The teens used to accuse me. They would say, uh, Michael, you, almost every verse you read in class, you tell us this is your favorite verse in the Bible. They can't all be your favorite, and I guess they're right about that, but I do have several favorites. But this one, Romans eight twenty-eight. there's not another verse in Scripture that I feel so conflicted about as Romans eight twenty-eight. There's some days that I take great comfort in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for them that love the Lord. And there's other days that I get so angry at Romans 8, 28, because how could something good come out of and then fill in the blank with whatever it is that you're going through at the time? This could be my least favorite verse in the Bible. There's so much I don't understand. How could, how could this possibly, how could this possibly work for good? How could something good possibly come from this? But that's what it says. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And the thing that I keep coming back to and the thing that I try to reconcile and the thing that I think it probably means is the end of the story, not the middle of the story. We read a book and it's got a beginning and it's got a middle and it's got an end and sometimes we want the book in the middle to still be pleasant. We want the book in the middle to still be good. And I don't think Romans 8.28 is talking about the middle of the book. I think it's talking about this last page back here at the very end. All things work together for them who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose to the faithful Christian. We know the last page of the book, don't we? To spend an eternity in heaven. And so no matter what happens in any other part of the book, the death to the loved one, the child that's sick, the parent that's struggling with health, the financial ruin, the broken marriage, the, the, the disrespectful child, whatever the problem is that you're having to endure, all that can work together for good if we're faithful to God. If we know we have an eternity waiting for us in heaven. It doesn't make the middle of the book read any easier. But that's the last page. The promise of an eternity in heaven with God. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul says it like this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to have to keep living, okay, I'll deal with that. I'll let it work together for good. I'll bring others to Christ. But should I be so lucky to die? 
Have you thought about it like that lately, huh? We don't usually worry. If I should be so lucky to die, then I get heaven today. What a mindset for Paul to have. He promises that all things work together for good. Letter C, God promises to never forsake us. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What a beautiful blessing it is to be able to trust the Word of God and to know that He's always with us. Letter D, God has promised that Jesus is coming back for us. In John chapter 14, verses 1-3, through a passage often read at, at funerals where Jesus speaks and talks about going to prepare a place for us where there's many mansions. And if He's going to go and prepare a place, then He's going to come back to receive us. It wouldn't make any sense to go and prepare a place and then to never come back to bring others to be able to live there with Him forever. But in John 14, we have the promise of the Lord returning one day to bring us home. And finally, letter E, God has promised a magnificent return. Going back to 2 Peter chapter 3, if you're still there, you remember in verse 3, we talked about the scoffers earlier. The ones who would say that there is no return of the Lord. The ones who would say that there is no promise of heaven. There is no fear of a punishment of hell. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. That by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, were reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The scoffers were saying, where are you, Lord? To the church people. Where is this Savior? You said He was going to return. He hasn't returned. Therefore, the Word of the Lord can't be trusted. You recall in point number one on our outlines this morning, throughout history, the promises of God have not fallen on the timetables of man, but rather on God's timetable, which is very different than what we experience. And so those who would try to draw us away and those who would tell us that the, the Word of the Lord can't be trusted, they would point to the fact that He hasn't returned. I would submit to you that according to Scripture, number two there, the Lord is being patient with us. The Lord is being patient with us. Again, in Second Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but He's long-suffering toward us, not willing to that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What two beautiful verses. To know that our Lord doesn't want any of us to perish. To know that our God doesn't want any of us to spend an eternity away from Him. It's the whole reason why He sent His Son. So that none of us would have to perish, but that we could all spend eternity in heaven with God. Number three. He has promised heaven for the faithful. God has promised heaven for the faithful. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4 says, God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. One of the great promises of God that I hope 
to see come to fruition someday is that beautiful reward of spending an eternity in heaven and not having pain, not having suffering, being able to finally understand what Romans 8.28 truly means to be able to spend an eternity with God. But perhaps the more terrifying word of the Lord Revelation 20:11 through 15. God's made many promises both to those of old and to us of today. God's also given many warnings, again, both to those of old and to us today. Perhaps the most fear, fear, fearsome warning of all is the promise of hell for the ones that are unfaithful. Revelation 20:11 through 15 says, "And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away." And there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. Did you hear it? The dead were judged, what? According to their works, by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, watch it, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Church, let me ask you this morning. What are your works? What are your works? It's our invitation today. What are your works? Revelation 20, we're going to be judged someday by my works and your works. You are going to be judged by your works. What have you done with your time on this earth? Have you lived a life that's in accordance with understanding that God is one who is going to be trusted to keep His Word? Both the promises and the warnings or the punishments. God can be trusted to keep His Word. Have you responded to that Word? Have you lived a life that would be pleasing and acceptable to Him? What are the works that you one day are going to be judged upon? Do you eagerly await the promises of God? Or this morning are you one that's here hoping that perhaps God doesn't keep His Word and there'll be no punishment? If you find yourself this morning in the latter category of one of the ones who are not eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord, may I suggest to you that you take this time to respond. If you need to put on Christ in baptism for the remission of sins, we can do that this morning. If you have some sin in your life you need to repent of, some work that you're practicing now that needs to be put away from behind you, some work that you need to begin in doing good for the Lord and to try to help bring others to Christ, if there's some change that needs to be made, we could pray with you and for you. God would forgive you. If we could help you in any way at all, would you please come while we stand and sing?